That's something that I would like to share with everybody is that if you're an entrepreneur, if you uh, have the privilege to take over a very traditional business, remember, you're not just changing your business, you're changing the ecosystem. You have an opportunity to change the industry that you're in. Um, being nimble, being innovative is something that um, that is very important over and above being resilient as well. Um, some people think that there's no poverty and there is no food insecurity and definitely there's no food waste, which all three are wrong. It's not correct. It's just that it's well taken care of. For all the founders out there or you know anybody who is like breaking through the glass ceiling right now as females, this is my learning for the last many years. Firstly, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to always look like we're put together every single day. And secondly, um, I think God or the power up there has blessed us with maternal instinct. The woman's instinct, it is very important sometimes to listen to that, to that instinct. Because we have this other sixth sense that we have calling for us. You know, if that sense is telling me something else, then you might want to check on, on what is that thing that that sense is telling you. Because don't ever ignore or in Chinese, as I would say, is to mind more that part of what your conscience is telling you. Because as a female, you're just given that, that, um, that actual instinct that you have. So let us all fail together and learn together and forward the movement of what it is to find what a female is together as well. Hi, a very warm welcome to another episode of Your Grid Story. This is the third episode of the Changemaker series featuring founders, who are doing good. Something really special about this episode is that we are celebrating International Women's Day as well. And today, we have Nico Ng, co-founder of X Inc. and Food Bank Singapore today with us. Welcome, Nico, to the show. Hi, Ray. Thank you for having me. I am super thrilled to have you on our show today because of two reasons. The first reason is that on one hand, you are leading a multi-million dollar company with a few non-profits under your belt. On the other hand, you are a mom of four kids. I think I should call you a superwoman. The second reason is that I am very excited to hear about your mission of Food Bank Singapore and how you guys distributed over 1,000 tons of food to the needy in a year. Before we kick off, we would like you to share about yourself and our audience can get to know who is Nicole Ng. On to you, Nicole. Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Nicole. Um, I So first and foremost, I think if my hubby is listening, then he would like to know that I'm uh, firstly a wife. Uh, in fact, this year, we are celebrating our 25th anniversary of knowing each other. So you are uh, up to you to guess my age, but um, I, I think a life partner and a supporter through these uh, tough times, it's important. Uh, and the second thing is that a lot of people would know that I'm a proud mum to four. I don't know if any more are in the works, but that might be it. And the next thing that you might identify me is that I am the co-founder uh, of the Food Bank Singapore. And that leads me to another very close family relation that I have, which is my brother. Because some people say that you must be crazy to start a charity with your brother, whom I am also working with. Uh, for our for-profit business as well. So I think it's been uh, quite an interesting journey because uh, importantly now, I am uh, the CEO uh, of X Inc group of companies. And what we do is that you might not see us, we're kind of like the ninjas behind the scene. But in a nutshell, what we do is uh, we actually distribute to more than 5,000 over F&B establishments 
from hotels to uh, famous chains like Shake Shack, for example. And we are the people that makes things happen behind the scene. And uh, that was actually the inspiration behind starting the food bank because we see so much that's happening there. Nice, nice. Thank you for that introduction. Um, it seems that you have so much experience, you know. Um, I have been researching a lot about your experience and it's really, really crazy because yes, you have so many um, enterprises, a group of companies under your belt. Share with us your journey as an entrepreneur, right? When do you start leading this business? Yeah, so, um, you know, Eric, I think we, for my story, is a little bit uh, different or unique or interesting. Um, for people that don't know the actual background, they would identify us as uh, food services, and that's how we started, because uh, we were one of the first few food guys to use black and green. So usually in the past, you don't see com food companies using black color as the mainstay, but uh, we were like the black ninjas back in the day. Uh, but the honest truth is that um, I joined the business in 2002, taking over uh, from a second generation. So I am a third generation uh, business owner. Um, my grandfather started the business in 1934. I've never met him before. He passed away before I was born and uh, before my parents got married. In fact, uh, the story is that he actually escaped to Singapore with two of his children. Uh, his first two, you know, after his first wife passed away, he came to uh, Singapore in 1934 in seek of a better life. And that's where he met my ama. And uh, subsequently, they had nine children. He started a small food distribution business along Rocho Road. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, I think he has never looked back since then, just, you know, peddling to the roadside hawkers. And then when my uncles came into the business, uh, they they actually expanded it to supply the hotels and like people like Jack's Place, for example, back in the day, there was very little Western food stuff uh, back then. Um, and so that was the first pivot that they did. My late father, who passed away in 2016, um, he was the second youngest of nine children. Uh, I learned a lot from him and I always mention him in my interviews because uh, not only were we very close-knit as a family, but uh, he was a school dropout at 15. Uh, but he was the one that started the trading business. That is not something that we are frequently known for. But uh, in the 80s and the 90s, um, he actually built a little empire of about 250 million US dollars in the early 90s. So what did he do? We were in everything from movie making to opening duty-free shops in the Maldives. Uh, we had a seafood trawling business. Wow. Uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, and um, we we were also a Swatch Watch distributor. Uh, so we had a private collection of more than a thousand pieces, as you can imagine. Um, but basically, he opened uh, a, a lot of companies, you know, more than uh, in 20 over countries um, all over the world in the early 90s, making money from uh, trading, right? And then came the 1997 currency crisis, and uh, the family actually went through a bankruptcy phase where uh, I was there when the banks came to seize the house. So that was, uh, I remembered shortly before I joined NUS as an undergrad, um, those were difficult times. But um, because you witness losing it all before with your, with your dad, you kind of appreciate whatever that we could still maintain in this current time. So I just wanted to set the stage in case some of you are wondering why Eric calls me an entrepreneur. Because I was very lucky to have gone through this bankruptcy phase and uh, my dad could ring fence my grandfather's business, this gave me kind of like a new slate uh, in 2007 where I founded Food Services 
and I bought over the family business. So what happened, what I did was I actually start up a new and I actually bought over uh, at arm's length um, the family business, gave it a, a fresh branding, restructured. 90% of the team followed me over to the new entity and um, that actually gave it a fresh start. And now on hindsight, um, I don't regret doing that at all. Yeah. Nice, cool. Um... Very interesting journey. Wow, uh, a few generations, and you are the third generation entrepreneur. Um, I think so. I think this this question is the advice uh, for advice for somebody, right? What is the, what is the advice for somebody who is trying to um, transform a traditional business like what you did? Yeah, you know, Eric, it's quite interesting that um, this was my second job, right? When I joined the traditional business. Um, because today being uh, International Women's Day, right? This is what this episode is yep. all about. Um, my uncles actually gave me one year to survive in the business. Uh, literally, when my dad asked me to come back to digitize the, the company, my uncle said, I give you one year. Because um, I had long red hair, I was wearing like four inch heels, you know, and then it's like, it's a tough business because most of the people in the food distribution, wholesaling, they were old Taukes, right? Probably in their 60s, in their 70s. And secondly, it was very male-dominated. So my uncle say, you know, I give you one year to survive. You'll we'll see how you can survive. And most of the chefs, the executive chefs till today, most of them are male. So in a very male-dominated industry, uh, and being a young punk that I was, and after coming out from my first job at Mediacorp, um, my uncle say, tough lah, because long hours as well, right? In a wholesale trade. So, but uh, I think 20 years on, I've proven myself that one of the things that you really need to have, um, being a maybe a second gen, a third gen, a fourth gen, coming into a very traditional space, is that I think you need to be assertive while respectful. Um, while, you know, you know, you have to understand that other than the uncles and the aunties or your dad, for example, your moms, uh, they are not the only people that you need to prove. You need to prove more importantly to the employees uh, that were probably in the business before you joined that, you know, you have to earn your stripes. So firstly, I, I really took the first, I think, five, seven years invoicing myself, making deliveries. There was no salesperson going out to meet each and everybody in the F&B industry. And then when, when I got to know uh, in and out of all the businesses, right, in the second year onwards, I started to make suggestions on what things uh, should be changed. And the third thing, which is very important, and um, that's something that I would like to share with everybody, is that if you're an entrepreneur, if you uh, have the privilege to take over a very traditional business, remember, you're not just changing your business, you're changing the ecosystem, you have an opportunity to change the industry that you're in, and um, that's the role that I take on today, because I don't think all the improvements that we're doing to my company or to our company, whether it's for the NGO side or whether it's for the for-profit side, it is important that we are forwarding the movement on this very traditional piece that we have. So I think um, being nimble, being innovative is something that um, that is very important over and above being resilient as well. Well said, Nico. Um, it's really beyond just changing the company, it's changing the industry and really to do more uh, meaningful um, things that we, what you can do in your life. Um, so I was actually researching a lot on what questions I should ask you, uh, and I know you're an advocate in minimizing food wastage and food insecurity. Uh, I was researching on food wastage, I was appalled by the research that which says in, in 2020, it was reported that 665,000 tons of food was wasted. 
uh, which is equivalent to the weight of about 46,000 double-decker buses. So would like to know what are your thoughts on this? You know, Eric, it's so funny, right? When we started out in 2012, it was just me and my brother thinking that, okay, we enjoy working together. Can we leave a legacy for everyone, right? Right? And, and um, it started out as just two of us having this banter that we should start Singapore's first food bank. And um, the, the funny thing was we never ever set out to be an environmental champion. We were really an accidental sustainability hero because back in the day in 2012, which is 10 years ago, there was no food waste report. The, food, the first food waste report, if I'm not wrong, came out in 1314 for Singapore. So it was very interesting that we were one of the first few non-profits that decided to go out to champion for excess food in the supply chain in order to feed the hungry people. So firstly, um, I on, on reflection, I always tell people this, as Singaporeans and for people who are living in Singapore, I, I think we don't count our lucky stars mm. enough. Have you ever thought, how come we can get a hot meal for $3 if you search enough in Singapore, you can still get a decent hot meal for $3.50? Nobody really asked that question, right? And why, why is it that the bananas in our supermarkets are even cheaper than the bananas in Australia, for example? So there's a lot of things that the government has done right for the past many, many decades since independence. So one of it was protecting the diversity of our source of food. Secondly, being a free port and not labeling or leveling any other import taxes on the food that is being imported into Singapore. And in fact, a lot of the consumables, right? There's no tax other than alcohol, you know, and cigarettes, for example, um, we don't have import taxes. And that has relatively been able to keep the food cost low for an extended period of time. So I think, um, and that is the cause of our downfall in terms of increasing the food wastage, because as you know, the other flip side, Singapore is like a hospital. We are so clean that you hardly see any rubbish. You know, everything is well taken care of. Unlike some other first world countries, even if you walk to New York, for example, you would see a lot of rubbish, you know, all around. You can smell poverty in the air. Even at Hong Kong, right? Well, I mean, that's equivalent, uh, one of our sisters, right? First world cities around the world. But when you go to Hong Kong, you likely can see poverty. And you can witness it. But in Singapore, we are so efficient in cleaning up rubbish. We're so efficient in housing homeless people. <laughs> We're so efficient, right? Even in, in, ter in terms of managing our food costs and keeping it low, increasing the diversity of the sources of food. That because of this problem, Eric, um, some people think that there's no poverty and there is no food insecurity. And definitely... There's no food waste, which all three are wrong. It's not correct. It's just that it's well taken care of. So when we first started out, we were also a little bit skeptical and afraid of, you know, what the media would be saying and what the government officials would actually be. Will they be coming to us, you know, hey, why are these two young punks, you know, saying all these nonsense about the country, right? But I honestly feel that if we are here to make a change, it is important to be outspoken. And this is where we were a little bit different from the other uh, ground-up initiatives, right? Because the, the rest of the NGOs, they are usually seen as non-profits, you know, social people or that started out. The difference that Nicholas and I brought to the table is that we are entrepreneurs first, philanthropists second. So as business people, sometimes it does carry some weight. 
So when you start to say about certain things or you want to champion certain reports or you want to get something done, people will kind of listen to you a little bit more because, hey, you know, this these two people actually know what they're talking about. So, I mean, just a shout out to any of the entrepreneurs or the, the people who are in the business field right out there. If you want to do good, actually, you have a much louder voice now than you ever had before. So, I mean, collectively, I think there's so much movement that we can do in order to increase the bar in terms of what social responsibility looks like. Well said. Um, and talking about the hunger report um, that you have been developing, um, I, I read the, in the 2020 hunger report that they show that one in 10 Singaporeans experience food insecurity at least once over 12 months. And out of this, two in five of them experience food insecurity at least once a month. So share more about the food report that you have worked on and what are the future plans and maybe the motivation behind the food report. You know, Eric, we waited so many years for the government to come up with a report. <laughs> that report cost us a quarter million dollars. And back in the day, pre-COVID, um, Food Bank was very poor. We were rich in food, but we didn't have much money because we were like one of the smaller charities, right? And and whenever people said, you know, actually, what does a food bank need? I said, I need food because my my bank relies on food, right? Just like a regular bank relies on cash. So I said, you have to give me food first. So, but we, we waited long enough and therefore in 2018, I was just talking to one of the professors in SMU and I said that, hey, you know, a lot of the donors are still doubting if really there's food insecurity in Singapore because everything is well taken care of. So the, the professor uh, connected me to the Lien Center for Social Innovation and therefore from there, we worked with the professors, the academics, right, for 20 months. And um, with that deep diving to that report, which was the first national study into food insecurity in Singapore, we, we had 10.4% of the people that resides on this island that are facing some kind of food insecurity. And last year, due to COVID and all that, right? So in 2020, when uh, the pandemic first hit, I told the professors that yes, after our first report came out, um, in 2021, we wanted to do a deep dive into how the pandemic has affected the really hunger situation, right? With the pandemic and the inflation and all that as well. So last year, we actually did Hunger Report Part 2. And we're very happy to tell everybody that in fact, in March, I think just about the time of when this uh, podcast is going out, um, we will be unveiling some of the stats that we that we have found out as we interviewed some of the families, right, that were badly impacted. So there are two takeaways from this uh, in-depth study. So firstly, especially during pandemic times, everybody wants to have a choice because they want to feel respected, right? The, the, the rest of us, 90%, 80% people that can figure out how life can go on and have an extra dollar to really choose a meal that we want to eat, right? So one of the things that we found out from this report is that people want to have a choice when they want to eat, what they want to eat, how they want to consume it. Is it a takeaway, takeaway? Or do they want to have a social aspect by going out to dine as well? But the current ecosystem in terms of the feeding programs that we have, there's not enough choices. So let's say, you know, you are getting some meal on wheels kind of program, very likely that you have no choice. You can't choose whether you want a noodle you can't choose if you want to have rice. Do you like spicy or I don't like spicy? That meal is just hung at your door. So now, um, a lot of the programs that we're developing from this year onwards is about empowering people with choice. 
And the second thing that we also spotted, which was also supported by some other NGOs reports out there already, is that people are taking priority into looking after their personal hygiene and personal health in other ways, other than filling their stomachs. They want to look after themselves, whether is it through uh, shampoo, body care, you know, and things like that. So personal health items are also quite highly sought after as well, which is not frequently donated. So we had the privilege of working with Guardian last year, in fact, um, to roll out our first ever personal hygiene uh, campaign. So the food bank is not just feeding people and nourishing the tummy, right? We're also looking at nourishing their souls and more importantly, looking after their health issues holistically so that everyone can lead a better life in totality. Wow. It's actually just, it's not just food, right? We realize it's not just food. It's more than food. It's holistic care of the body mind, soul, stomach, you know, um, and, and as you scale up this initiative for Food Bank Singapore, share with us some innovations, right, that the Food Bank is embarking to support this initiative um, this coming years, and how are you tackling these problems or this um, that they just mentioned just now? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that for the NGO sector, um, there's a lot of lack of uh, data and big data. So a couple of years ago, in fact, now close to three years ago, we launched our virtual food banking app, and that was our first foyer into digitizing ourselves. So the mindset that we undertook for the food bank, because we've been running companies, was to corporatize, professionalize, and digitize, just like any companies would. Why should a charity be any less off, right, in terms of professionalism? So we were very happy that we started on that digitization journey much earlier on than maybe some of some of the rest of the NGOs. The second program that we launched in 1.9 already with our first vending machine, um, we started with one to test the waters. And then come 2020 in June, we actually had a, a blessing of a, a, a half a million dollars that enabled us to buy more than 50 machines that is all around the island right now. So I think um, counting to this year, we already have about 60 over machines, not only to dispense uh, cooked food, but also all the rest of the interesting dry rations that are not found in food bundles. So again, with the bank card that comes with these vending machines, right, it enables people to choose certain things or interesting things. We might have potato chips or popcorn, right? So other than the rice and the oil and the canned food that is already frequently redistributed to the needy people, we wanted the vending machines to add that nostalgic fun, so to say. So some of the elderly, they find it so interesting for them to be able to redeem the food from the vending machines and empowering the power of digitization to the underprivileged as well. So now 24-7, anytime, maybe they need an extra packet of three-in-one uh, coffee, for example, they can just tap their card and uh, retrieve from the vending machines. Then uh, last year, uh, the, actually in 2020, we actually launched the cooked food frozen cooked meals in these vending machines as well. So together with Philips and the, the National Heart Foundation, we actually curated these nutritious and very tasty meals that are constantly in rotation. And uh, we are now working with other F&B partners as well to come up with very interesting food. So we even had wonton mee frozen in these vending oh. machines. People can actually retrieve wow. these very interesting frozen meals that they can tap the cart and then bring it home as well. Then the other thing that we're working on right now, there are two major things, actually a few major things also. So firstly, uh, with the bank card last year, we also um, 
launch Feed the City, what we call 3.0, where anyone that has this bank card, they can actually get their free meals from FMB establishments. So with COVID, what happened was firstly, and everybody knows there's been a drop of volunteers because of social distancing, safe distancing measures, right? So a lot of the charities has been facing a drop in volunteering, which means that it might be quite difficult for people to get more meals, you know, difficult for charities to actually operate because there's a drop in manpower. So what we, what we thought was how interesting would it be to empower the 95% of the beneficiaries that are all able-bodied anyway, like students and all that, to go out to choose the food that they want to eat. Yeah, and therefore the Feed the City, that's one of the programs we're hoping to onboard. So a shout out to any FMB outlets who wants to be on board this program. We are not asking you to give free meals. The food bank will be paying you, in fact. But it's just that if you can accept the bank cards, they will actually be have a, a lot of impact because a lot of these people will be able to redeem free meals at all your FMB establishments. So for us, it's also a way of giving back to the FMB community because not forgetting a lot of the underprivileged also works at all these FMB establishments, whether as a delivery driver or whether is it as a service staff as well. So by helping the FMB, we're helping the direct clients and beneficiaries of this uh, food credit system. But the other thing which is going to be very exciting is that we are also coming up with uh, what we call a feeding directory. It's a national feeding directory. So imagine for all the parents out there, you would know what I'm talking about. Whenever your kid turns six years old, you would actually want to key in the postal code to check, is my home near a good school or a school that I want to register the kids in? With the same philosophy, we are going to let the social workers, the, the end beneficiaries, just key their postal code and they will be able to know that, hey, I've got this church that's dishing out uh, every Sunday, there's a hot meal, for example, or let's say there's a closest to them, a family service center that gives out food bundles, for example. So this is what's lacking in the ecosystem right now. There's plenty of people giving out a lot of food, different types of food, different times of the month, different times of the year, but there has never been an integrated platform where you just key in a number. And then, so, and this means that not just social workers, but even your neighbors, for example, or if you, you know that you have a teammate that seems to be struggling with their everyday, you can actually just key in this postal code and say that, hey, you know, actually downstairs, there's someone out already giving out some free food, for example, and you can actually direct help to the people in need. Awesome. Impressive. Uh, fun fact, I was just... Uh, my kid is turning six next year. I was just looking for the postal code thing. <laughs> so fun fact. Um, and really impressive that it sounds like you are really building a um convenient and 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 really this convenient ecosystem, right? That matches and and having really options, right, for the needy, right, for their food choices. It's not just I love your concept of hey, it's not just hanging that food on the handle, right? It's more than that. It's more that everybody has the dignity to choose what they want to eat, how they want to eat, and when they want to eat. Alright, I know you are also very deep into sustainability. Uh, could you tell us more about your passion in um, working with local farms and when, what drives you to do that? Yeah. Um, again, you know, sustainability wasn't the actual thing that I was going for, but I just saw it firsthand mm. that um, a lot of people were investing in high-tech farms. And um, I'm not talking about the VCs, you know, or the people who have a lot of equity. 
I'm seriously talking about people who are so passionate about the farming space, right? Um, there are people who have like sold their houses <laughs> to get into this business because thinking that farming is uh, very interesting, they, they truly believe that they want to, you know, grow locally, sustainability and all that. And about five, six years ago, I met all these passionate farmers that were letting go of their day jobs to get into this trade. And so therefore, I, I started reaching out to some of the government agencies who were giving out a lot of uh, free land or, you know, uh, tech incentives for them to start all this out. But what was lacking was someone to aggregate all these farms together in terms of the ability to distribute for them. So I wanted to encourage more of the F&B outlets, you know, and, and even some of the smaller uh, supermarkets, for example, to be able to embrace local produce more efficiently because each of the small farms, now there are many farms out there that's less than a thousand square feet. So can you imagine the farmer is already stressing over how to grow my high-tech lettuce or tomatoes, right? The last thing that they wanted to invest in is an additional truck or additional driver to get their produce uh, to the people that want to consume them, right? So slowly, as I understood a lot more about this agri-tech space, I really felt that it was very important for us to bring all these farmers together in a non-threatening manner and everyone works together to drive the movement of go local, you know, as collectively as a co-op, so to say. So what I did was uh, last year, we actually launched what we call Backyard Productions, which is a social campaign, so to say, to encourage more F&B players, more chefs, you know, more uh, people, just consumers like you and I, please support local, not just because it's nationalistic, but it was very important that because of COVID, right, we had floods recently in Malaysia, and then everyone was saying that, hey, you know, the cost of vegetable has gone up so much. And I think what the pandemic did for us is that, can you imagine if the borders are closed? Are we self-sufficient? Do we really have enough? And the second thing of why... Um, I wanted to champion sustainability because I think due to the 100 years of industrialization, very few of us actually started um, questioning anymore, where does our food come from? Maybe not for ourselves because we were very privileged that over the last 20, 30 years, ample food was available. But with the pandemic, everybody started realizing that the supply chain is all well connected. If the farmers cannot go to the field to do farming, for example, maybe the next day your rice is impacted, the prices of rice is also going to be impacted, right? So, but all in all, I thought in order to safeguard the future for the future generations to come, it was very important to physically and maybe entrepreneurially also support the businesses that are in this agri-tech space. So sustainability, there are two things that I'm championing, right? So first thing is backyard productions, which is all the local farmers, and a fish farm, uh, even maybe one day the oyster farms are going to come on board as well. Prawn farms, Singapore is building sustainable prawn farms, which is the world's most sustainable prawn farms. The technology is amazing. And definitely all the vegetable farms as well. But the other thing that we've also done really is uh, to support the alternative protein space. The cell base, the plant base. So while it's still very early days into this space, but it's not good enough having heavy investment into the technology and into the manufacturing of the products as well. It is very important for distributors and aggregators like ourselves to say that, hey, I'm putting my dollar, I'm putting my bet behind this industry also so that we can enable the movement of these products into the F&B space, into the retail space also. Yeah, so these are the two big pieces.
Awesome. Um, talking about these few big pieces, it sounds like you have really a lot of big pieces. And uh, it's not just you alone. I know you are working on these big pieces with your brother, Nicholas. And uh, let us know. Share with us, how do you compliment um, your sibling, your brother, Nicholas? Yeah, it's um, we were we are born eighteen months apart. Um, he's one one and a half years younger than I am. Wow. So we uh, so some people would ask like, how come only two? Because back then it was the stop at two campaign. In case some of you are too young to know this, but back in the day, you know, our Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew really was like, I need to control the population. So I was <laughs> I was born in that era where you know um they were recommending to give birth to two kids, and there was there's two of us. Mm. Um, I had my mom to thank really um, because my dad was working hard, right, uh, earning the money for the family. Um, me and my brother were brought up in a way that we are always family first and I guess business partners second. Uh, and um, he always respected me as the older sister and I respected him to be that individual person that he is. So from young, I've always kind of like acted as his uh, protector and you know he was kind of like a whiny kid you know and I don't think he minds me saying this because it's open knowledge he was the say you know there's vegetable in my porridge I don't eat vegetable he's the kind that my dad was dangling a thousand dollars in front of him to eat one Thai sin and he would say no I think now he's truly regretting it right and to say that you know I should have eaten all my veggies and earned a thousand dollars so, but um, there was kind of very close um, relationship that we've had since young. And I've never felt that uh, we're ever in competition. In fact, I think we play off each other's strengths and weaknesses. So I think outside my marriage and outside my best girlfriend, you know, I think my, my brother literally is the buddy that, I, that I, I've had all my life. I remember that um, he is always the he-man to my Barbie and my Barbie is the Barbie to his he-man. So we always play in different universes and we kind of make things happen. And my mom left us to be independent. There was no helper at home. So I remember by eight years old, my mom would go for her Lions Club meeting and two of us were left in the master bedroom. My mom would just lock the door and say, okay, two of you play here for two hours while mommy go for my charity meeting. It was just two of us. So we were doing crazy stuff together, you know, from young, you know, and um, and I and I think being a bigger sister, it was important that um, my maternal instincts were there that I wanted to protect him as my brother. And that's where the love and the care comes in as well. Because when a family has um, that unselfish way of giving, you won't, you won't start to count so much or calculate so much. I think the other thing is that I'm very lucky to have a brother who appreciates you know and and love me for the way that i am and i think eric very importantly back to business right a lot of people are curious we we have those difficult conversations before the business started even growing and i remember the day when i found it so difficult reinventing the old business and at uh, that time we were still at Keppel Road and he was at Tiger Life which was uh, near Vivo City so we were like 5 minutes away from each other and I would drive the car to him and say, wind down the window. He would come into the car and say, what happened? Like, and I would start crying. I said, I said, boy, I think I cannot make it anymore. Like, you know, I, I really <laughs> like, you know, uh, I had an argument with dad and it was so difficult convincing the logistics drivers to change alongside. They don't understand, you know, and, um, and then it was five, six years on, you know, after working for Tiger Beer. And I said, I think it's time for us to do something afresh. And that was in 06, I remember very clearly that we started planning for food services. 
because I cleaned up the old business as much as I could already, but I felt that something was still missing. So together, in the car, we said that, okay, 2008 was the time that he was going to come back, but in 07, we're going to start food services and we will acquire the traditional business so that we could give it a complete facelift and the two of us could make our mark together as business partners to give this very 70-year-old business a, a completely a new uh, lease of life, as I call it. And um, I think we've never looked back. We've taken on and embraced challenges, you know, uh, through the many years that we've worked together. And I must say, Eric, I'm so lucky till today. Uh, we have open door conversations. We talk about very difficult, difficult things. And even as difficult as what if we we are facing financial difficulties now? Like right now, right? I mean, it's it's there is no shame in saying that it's it's a difficult market, right? The F and B is not doing very well. But what are we going to do to pivot? You know, and then I I, I remember just asking him a month ago. I said, hey, actually, what do you want for yourself? We're in our forties now, you know, and I I think even it's asking each other those conversations, difficult conversations like. Maybe we don't need to continue Yeye's uh, business. Maybe is there a way for us to continue or get a professional CEO to run that particular business? Those people might have a better idea of how we can run it. And two of us can look at new startups, new businesses, right? So to start afresh. So I think for a family business angle, I think siblings needs to have that real conversation. And for me, it's just that I was lucky enough that two of us are very different people but we always somehow have the same values so that, you know, the, the future, you know, we always argue sometimes in a very nice way, debate, but we've never had a major fight before. And um, that was really important to, to know is because of the love and respect that we have for each other. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Sounds like a perfect match, right? Mutual respect, mutual care, mutual values together. I think this is great. Um, and I heard you saying that um, um, he called you um, and and you call him boy, so that's interesting. It so sounds like you are also like a like a mom to him. I think you have a fifth kid. <laughs> but uh, uh, and talking about speaking about parenting, right? I mean, being a mother of four kids, um, what are your lessons you could share? I mean, there are listeners out there that are who are mothers um, of kids. They are, might be struggling. They might be founders who have kids. What are some lessons, some learnings you could share with our listeners out here about parenthood? Yeah, I. Um, I think very importantly is that, uh, remember that parenthood is a choice. Nobody ever put a gun to your head to say that you have to be a parent unless it was an accidental pregnancy or whatever, right? But for most traditional folk, you know, or those of us that have gone through the route is that, um, parenting is, is, uh, was a choice that you made, you know, um, and if it was a choice, like, just like how you would get, take on the job offer, right? You have to make it work. So that was the mindset, you know, and, and like with, uh, the other mothers and, and dads that sometimes I share with, nobody ever told me to have four kids. I chose to have that crazy life. And, um, because it was a choice that I made. It is very important that, you know, I, I make the full use of it that it was a choice and I'm going to make it the best choice that I ever made. And, you know, it's so important to realize that all my four kids are like, I don't know what planet they are from, but they're all four different people from, you know, all four different Martians from four different planets, although they came up from the same genes. 
but they're all different people. And um, I respect them for the children that they are, you know, and I, I think the other thing that is um, interesting or quite refreshing is that from as soon as they can understand, even from uh, an infant, right, when I'm like nursing them, I actually have conversations and talks with them as if they're an adult. And sometimes my husband say, you are like crazy. Like what are you talking to them about? So, so much so, I'll give you an example. Um, so in between um, my boy, who's number three, and my youngest child now, I actually um, lost a pregnancy in between, right? Um, it wasn't, I had to make a choice to terminate the, the pregnancy because the boy wasn't developing well. It was very painful. But I think there are very few parents that actually speak of miscarriages or terminated pregnancy as if that child was a part of the family, but I did. Mm. And um, so now if you speak to any of my kids, they will say that, yeah, we have five, but mm. Didi is in heaven. Mm. And it's a very interesting take on, uh, it's a very matured way of sharing my grief back then because, and, and this is something that I always talked about and, and very few people speak about it because whether is it miscarriages, natural miscarriages or terminated pregnancies or, you know, uh, unwanted abortions that may need to happen. I think parents, especially for moms, there is no platform to speak about these things openly. And, and what I learned through my own experience is that regardless whether you lost the child after birth, at stillbirth or three months after birth or even three months in vitro, the loss is very real. I, and for me, it was quite difficult because um, unlike someone that has given birth and, you know, the, the child has, was born as an infant to be buried, right? How do I reconcile the death of my child in me? You know, and, and there was nothing to bury because it was just an embryo or, you know, a very, very small bit, right? I even asked the doctor, can you give me the part so that I can do something to close the chapter? But I kept it real with my children. I, I I shared a lot of these things with them. And even during COVID, I remembered early in 2020, I told them uh, it's a blessing for us to be able to live through COVID-19 because we were the chosen generation to live through this pandemic so that we have stories to tell, so that we have lessons to learn, so that all of you can go out and get a solution if another pandemic should come and that another crisis mm. crisis should come right how should we all deal with it it is unless you live through it you will not be able to find solutions for it so and imagine my kids are nine years to two years old but i've been having these conversations and candid talks with them in the car which is why i really like driving with them right and the other thing if I may to share how I keep saying, you know, in juggling all these things is that I'm that crazy mother who blasts the music <laughs> and dance in the car with my children, you know, and all of them will know that, yeah, you're a crazy mom. My children will tell all their friends is that, yes, I'm a crazy mother that will wake up at 5.45 in the morning to prepare lunch boxes for them, prepare box, uh, breakfast for them, drive them to school. And then at the end of the day, I will still be the last one to go to bed because I only need to sleep four hours at night. And uh, till now, I do the night duty myself. My helpers don't do it for me. Yeah, and wow. um, and I, I make it a point to to tell my husband because he needs more sleep than I do. I said, honey, please go and sleep so that you are less grouchy in the morning because I'm okay to live with black coffee and four hours of sleep. You know, and, and, and probably look like I've put it together and, and get and juggle all these things. But 
I think these are the things that I appreciate the most because realizing that the children grow up so fast. And I think the other thing importantly is that with the children, um, I have a different layer of conversation with my husband that likely maybe for people who choose not to have kids, you know, you won't get, you won't be able to speak mm. about certain things. Yeah, and you learn a different facet of your partner, you know, and I learn to appreciate yeah. each other on a different level. Yeah. Wow. Very, very impressive. I think you're not just a woman, you are a superwoman. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm juggling so many things and, and able to wake up at 5.45 and, and have lunch boxes. I can't imagine, seriously. And, and until you're the last person to sleep, I think that is purely like superwoman. And in the spirit of International Women's Day is around the corner, there are female founders, female hustlers, even employees out there you know, hustling, making their life meaningful or even making their life worthwhile. What is your key message to them? Yeah, I think to all my female counterparts out there, it is very important. Um, this is my learning for the last many years. Firstly, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to always look like we're put together every single day. And this is what I, I tell my teammates as well, especially if they are first-time moms, right? That it's okay to look like, you haven't had enough sleep, you know, that my mascara is a little bit out of whack, you know, it's okay. We don't have to be perfect. And because as women, we always feel that there's a need to display the best sides of ourselves. Unlike men, you know, a little bit, but <laughs> it's okay to be not so put together. It's all right not to be perfect. This is one. And secondly, um, I think God or the power up there has blessed us with maternal instinct, the woman's instinct. It is very important sometimes to listen to that to that instinct because we have this other sixth sense that we have calling for us, right? Which sometimes the men don't really get it. And mm. it's okay to say that we acknowledge that sense because it might give you a different approach to your business. It might give you some insights to your employees, your teammates, or even that, you know, if that sense is telling you something else, then you might want to check on, on what is that thing that that sense is telling you. Because don't ever ignore, or in Chinese, as I would say it, is to mind more that part of what your conscience mm. is telling you because you are blessed with that gift. Re regardless of your sexual orientation, as a female, you're just given that, that, um, that actual instinct that you have. So I think for all the founders out there or you know anybody who is like breaking through the glass ceiling right now as females, I said, it's okay, so let us all fail together and learn together and forward the movement of what it is, defining what a female is together as well. Awesome advice for all the females out there. Uh, we are wrapping up, just to wrap up with the last question. Um, thank you for your sharing around Food Bank Singapore. The question for us is how can we contribute? How can we help or get involved in this awesome initiative you are working on? Yeah, so I, I think, Eric, it's important, more important now than ever, to know that um, hunger has no face. It might be your neighbour, it might be your co-worker, it might be a student that you're teaching, it might be one of your teachers even, right? Although people on the outside look like they've put, they are so put together, but hunger has no face. And with COVID, right, what has happened is that hunger has actually, food insecurity has attacked people in the middle income as well. Maybe some of them has lost their jobs overnight. You will never know. So what I'm, if I need to put an appeal to everybody is look out for someone that's next to you. If you notice that they are not doing that well, just reach your hand out and ask them, you know, is, 
Is there something that I can do? Because really hunger has no face. And of course, if any of you have extra time, extra money, you can go on to foodbank.she, take a look at what we do. And for us, it's not a it's not the amount of time that you spend with us. It's not the amount of money as well. If you want to be, be the ambassador, right? Even like children, you can sign up for the juniors club that we have. If you can help us to forward our movement, even by sharing with one extra person about what the food bank does, you are already helping our initiative. So from the bottom of our hearts, I'd just like to say a big thank you first to everybody. Awesome. Thank you, Nico, for sharing what we can do together, right? To make a world a better place for us. Thank you, Nico, again for your time. It's hard to find such a precious time that I had to have you on our podcast episode with your so crowded calendar. Um, thank you for your time. And that's the end. Thank you, Nico. Thanks, Eric.